Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And Tracy, I don't think it's any secret that Edgar Allan Poe remains almost 170 years after his death, a figure of fascination and intrigue. Yeah, it's definitely true. One of the names that often comes up as part of Poe's story is his frenemy, Rufus Griswold. Uh, if you watched the recent PBS documentary, Edgar Allan Poe Buried Alive, you would have heard some of the story of their contentious relationship and how today Griswold is largely blamed for a degree of character assassination that took place after Poe's death. Uh, Griswold is also mentioned briefly in a previous episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class that was hosted by Sarah and Dublino that is specifically um, about Poe's death. But we wanted to dig a little bit deeper into who exactly Griswold was and how his story gets tangled up with Poe's and why his name did not have the same staying power of his rival. Uh, we are also coming up on Griswold's birthday, so it seems like kind of a good time to tackle this story. The date of Rufus Wilmot Griswold's birth is reported differently depending on which source you look at. His Encyclopedia Britannica entry lists it as February 15th of 1815. But Joy Bayliss, who wrote the only comprehensive biography of Griswold in 1943, cites February 13th of 1812. Both of these dates are found in various other publications, so you might see it either way depending on where you look. Sources do agree that he was born in Benson, Vermont, to a Calvinist family. His father had a farm and also worked as a shoemaker. And there have, I should note, uh, been other people who have written about Griswold's biography, but that Bayless one is really, like, the most detailed, at least that I found. Uh, and Rufus was from a very large family. His parents had 14 children in all. Rufus was the 12th. And when he was still young, somewhere between 7 and 10, his parents sold their farm and they moved to Hubbardton to the east of Benson. And as a child, his personality is described as unruly, reckless, and restless. In 1830, Griswold briefly enrolled in school at the Rensselaer School in Troy, New York. But he was barred from the institution after playing a prank on one of the professors. His brother Heman, who was a successful businessman in Troy, helped Rufus get into the school. And then after this failure, Rufus was to move into his brother's counting room and then work for him. Rufus was not really enthusiastic about this arrangement. Uh, given this whole series of events, it's not especially surprising that he left his family behind at the age of 15 to make his own way in the world. So he set out describing himself later in his writing as, quote, a solitary soul wandering through the world, a homeless, joyless outcast. Even though he had painted himself as an outcast, he soon moved in with a friend, writer George D. Foster in Albany, New York. He had made George's acquaintance while he was in Troy. Griswold lived with Foster, who was seven years his senior, for two years. There has been some speculation that their relationship might have had a romantic aspect to it, but that really remains unclear. The primary evidence is a letter that Foster wrote to, to Griswold after Rufus had moved away, which read, quote, I have loved often and deeply. My heart has burned itself almost to a charred cinder by the flames of passion which have glown within it, and yet I have never felt towards any human being, man or woman, so strong and absorbing affection as I bear you. Farewell, farewell. Come to me if you love me. 
I feel like this tells us a lot more about how Foster felt than how Griswold felt. That is exactly the thing. Uh, we we really don't, you know, I mean, you never know what happens between two people when they are away from the rest of us. But clearly Foster felt very strongly for him. We do not know if that was reciprocated. Uh, Foster would later go on to acclaim for his series about life in New York, which was titled New York and Slices, in which he published in the New York Tribune. His most well-known work, though, is in a similar vein. It's a series of literary snapshots of New York titled New York by Gaslight. At this point, Griswold's story gets really hazy. He wandered around for a bit, but while his late teens had for a long time been described as a period where he traveled the world, it's more likely that he merely traveled the southern U.S. and then back north. Yeah, some of that is probably him building up his own story uh, and his own mythos. But Griswold was a journalist from early on in his life. And after a short apprenticeship with a printer, he actually started his own paper, The Porcupine, in Syracuse, New York. And this publication was perhaps named as a warning because he used it as a platform to write criticisms of the residents of Syracuse. Starting in late 1834, he worked at another Syracuse paper, The Constitutionalist, but soon moved on to an editing position at the Chautauqua Whig. He also started editing for other papers, including The Western Democrat and The Literary Inquirer. In early 1936, Rufus moved to New York City and met Caroline Searles shortly after he arrived. And the story goes that he and a friend named Butler had been out walking when a rainstorm hit, and Butler had a friend who lived nearby, and so the two men sought shelter from this storm there. And that was where he met Caroline. It was, in fact, her family's home. And the two fell instantly in love. Griswold and the 19-year-old Searles were soon engaged, and they married the following year. During Griswold's early time in New York, he dabbled in multiple possible career paths. He worked as an editor at multiple publications to make money. He also considered entering politics, but his chosen party, the Whigs, didn't support his ambitions in this arena, and he abandoned the idea. He became a Baptist clergyman in, in 1837, but he never really got into regular religious work. Yeah, there's some theorizing that perhaps Caroline had kind of pushed him into that avenue, but then that he kind of did it to appease her, but it wasn't really something he cared a great deal about. In 1839, Griswold, along with Park Benjamin Sr., founded a newspaper called Brother Jonathan. And this paper, and we have to use the air quotes there, was really just a means to reprint existing British novels, which they were doing without permission. Griswold and Benjamin called their project a newspaper so that they could take advantage of reduced postal rates that newspapers were given. Brother Jonathan ended up having something of a coup, and Benjamin and Griswold lost control of their paper. So they started a new one that functioned on the same business model of pirating published novels, putting them out in installments. Their new venture was called The New World, and it positioned itself from the beginning as Brother Jonathan's rival publication. And you'll actually sometimes see Brother Jonathan's founding listed as 1842. And that actually marks its relaunch under Benjamin Day, who took over from them and reset the publication number to volume one, number one at that time. Both of these newspapers had to compete with the very source material that they were, they were cribbing. Many readers were happy to just buy the published novels so that they could have the whole thing in its entirety and not have to wait for multiple installments to come out to finish the story. And so to try to snatch a little bit more of the market, 
the New World began printing entire novels in a single issue of the paper and issuing them as extras to the paper, charging 50 cents a copy. And this was a really successful move and one that Brother Jonathan and other similar papers immediately started to copy. But those other papers glutted the market and the competition drove the prices down to less than 10 cents a copy. Not long after, the U.S. Postal Service more or less ended this entire niche of U.S. publishing when it declared that these periodicals could no longer take advantage of the newspaper rate to publish pirated uh, works. Eventually, Brother Jonathan was actually absorbed by the New World in 1844, so that was some years down the road. But the New World only existed for another year even after that, that takeover. We're going to talk more about the relationship between Caroline and Rufus and a somewhat unusual living situation after we pause for a quick sponsor break. Rufus and Caroline had two children, both daughters, early in their marriage. Their first child, Emily Elizabeth, was born in early 1838, just as Rufus was starting a new job in Vermont. Caroline stayed in New York until the baby was born and then moved to Vermont several months later. But they moved to New York again in 1839 so that Rufus could work for Horace Greeley at the Daily Whig. He also became friends with Park Benjamin during this time. Before their venture and brother Jonathan, the two of them had worked together on a paper called The Evening Tatler. Greeley thought this effort, which included some barbs aimed at Edgar Allan Poe, was not very worthwhile as an endeavor, So he tried to find other jobs for Griswold, including a failed attempt to have him employed by the Southern Literary Messenger. He instead got a job as an assistant editor at The New Yorker. Yeah, I like that in kind of a a mentor position, (laughs) uh, Horace Greeley was like, no, 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 please don't. Please don't work on that garbage. Do something better with yourself. Also, I'm struck throughout uh, Griswold's story, and really if you look at any stories of people that worked in journalism during this time, of just how much they were all kind of shifting around from publication to publication. But not long after their second daughter, who was named Caroline after her mother was born, Rufus moved away from the family, first to Philadelphia to shop an anthology project around, and then to Boston to work on Boston Notion, and eventually to Philadelphia again to work at the Philadelphia Daily Standard in November of 1940. And this was all sort of a rather sudden move. He had abandoned his work in New York, and his family just stayed behind. He did make regular trips to New York to visit with Caroline and the girls, but he lived primarily in Boston and then Philadelphia throughout all this. He published the book The Biographical Annual, containing memoirs of eminent persons recently deceased in 1841, but to his dismay, it did not do very well. When he later published the anthology The Poets and Poetry of America in April of 1842, he found a lot more success. And this is kind of the the project that he is often uh, most famously linked to Poe for. This volume featured 91 writers with a brief biography and some work from each of them. And while Poe was featured, his biography was inaccurate. There were only a few of his poems in the book, uh, which included The Sleeper, The Haunted Palace, and The Coliseum. And he was kind of shoved at the back. And by comparison, other poets who today are scarce remembered had far more of their work included. The main criticism of Griswold's anthology, though, was that it favored New England poets and it snubbed those from the South. Griswold had made Poe's acquaintance in 1841. Griswold's version of events was that Poe had come to visit him when he was not at home in May of that year and left behind two letters of introduction. 
They met the next day and discussed the anthology project that Griswold was working on, which became Poets and Poetry of America. Poe was paid by Griswold to review the anthology, and the review was overall pretty kind, but did not offer the level of praise that that Griswold had been expecting. Yeah, Poe at this time was working uh, as a literary critic, among other uh, endeavors, and he was known for being, you know, pretty... I I guess harsh is a good word. Uh, He was just very direct. He didn't really cut anybody any slack. Uh, He had a high standard that people had to meet before he would really offer praise. Uh, And this whole weird interaction between the two of them where he was supposed to write this review and Griswold wasn't happy, and it really became something of a cat and mouse game between these two men. So Poe thought that Griswold would have the review suppressed and because it wasn't you know, especially, like, crazy. And it allegedly delighted Poe to think that he had been paid to write a puff piece and that he instead uh, gave a review that would never be seen because of its depth of honesty. But Griswold had the review printed because he didn't want to give Poe the satisfaction of thinking that he had somehow bested Griswold or in any way offended his ego. Two years into Griswold living separately from his family while he chased jobs all over the northeastern United States, the Griswolds had a third child in early November 1842. Rufus went to New York to visit his wife and newborn son, and then three days after he returned to Philadelphia, he received terrible news. Both Caroline and the baby had died from an unknown cause. This sudden loss was, naturally, really intense and quite harrowing for Rufus Griswold. He returned immediately to New York, and he wouldn't leave Caroline's coffin for 30 hours. When his friends and family begged him to rest and move away from the coffin just to get a break, he instead insisted on embracing his dead wife. And his two young daughters at this point were on hand to witness all of this extreme exhibition of grief. He wrote in a letter to family friend James T. Fields, quote, You knew her, my friend. She was my good angel. She was the first to lead me from a cheerless, lonely life to society. She was not only the best of wives, but the best of mothers. Alas for me, I shall shall never more have a home to fly to in my sorrows, never more a comforter of my afflictions, never more a partner to share in all my woes or to be a source and author of all my pleasures. May God forever keep you from all such sorrow." On November 11th, Caroline was buried in Brooklyn at Greenwood Cemetery. But Rufus cried and fell across the coffin in its tomb so that the ceremony couldn't be concluded. And eventually, Caroline's uncle had to pull Griswold away. On November 16th, an anonymously written poem titled Five Days appeared in the New York Tribune. This was Griswold's work, and it walks the reader through a series of events in his life just prior to and after the death of his wife and child, and his difficulty coming to terms with the loss. Griswold's grief continued to consume him. He continued to dream that Caroline was alive and that they were reunited. And 40 days after the funeral, according to his own account, Rufus returned to the tomb and had the sexton open it and then went down into it and opened Caroline's coffin. Uh, he was with Caroline's remains a long while. He actually uh, allegedly fell asleep embracing the body before a friend came and retrieved him. It does seem as though seeing Caroline's decaying body helped Griswold to finally process her death to a point that he could move on. 
He wrote of the experience, quote, In all this I know, I have acted against reason, but as I look back upon it, it seems that I have been influenced by some power too strong to be opposed. The same account continues, quote, I go forth today a changed man. I realize at length that she is dead. I turn my gaze from the past to the future. And Rufus Griswold still had two daughters to provide for, so eventually he went back to his work. His turn at the Philadelphia Daily Standard marks Griswold's transition into literary criticism, and that's something that he would actually do for the rest of his life. In 1842, Griswold became assistant editor on Graham's magazine after the post was left by his predecessor, Poe. Griswold stayed at the job for a year, and he ended up leaving the position as his animosity between him and Poe started to escalate. A new review of the Poets and Poetry of America had appeared in the Philadelphia-based literary journal Saturday Museum, and it was scathing. Griswold believed Poe had written it, uh, although it was, in fact, one of Poe's friends. This caused ongoing friction between the two men until it finally reached this point where Griswold wanted to get some distance from his rival. The 1840s, though, did end up being really quite productive for Griswold. In something of a surprising twist, giving his ventures in publishing novels in Brother Jonathan without permission, Griswold, along with a number of other figures from his literary circles, started the American Copyright Club, which was designed to promote copyright law and the protection of creators from doing exactly the sorts of things that he had been doing just a few years earlier. He also continued to publish anthologies. In 1845, Griswold edited a collection of John Milton's prose, and this was the first United States edition of that work. And we're about to get into Rufus Griswold's brief second marriage. But first, we will take a quick break and have a word from one of our fantastic sponsors. So another major event happened in Griswold's life in 1845. He got married again. And this time, his bride was a Southern woman more than a decade older than him named Charlotte Myers. And they said their marriage vows on August 20th of 1845, but Rufus almost immediately left Charlotte. Allegedly, there was some physical condition which rendered her, quote, incapable of being a wife. I am needlessly curious about what that was about. There's a lot of speculation about it, whether this was some physical abnormality that could have probably easily been corrected or if there was some other issue with it. But basically, it appears that the marriage was never consummated. And once it was apparent that it never would be, uh, Rufus was out. All right, then. <clears throat> the two of them separated. And as part of the terms, Charlotte kept one of Griswold's daughters, Caroline, who she had grown very fond of. His other daughter, Emily, was dropped off with relatives in New York, and Griswold threw himself into his work once more. Uh, I am not a parent, but that still sounds sort of horrifying. It does seem a little odd. There is going to be some more horrifying follow-up on that. Um, his next project was the Prose Writers of America, and this offered something of a tense scenario for the editor, because at this point... Edgar Allan Poe was a celebrated writer, and there was absolutely no way that Rufus Griswold could exclude him from such a compilation without inviting some pretty harsh criticism and a dismissal of the work's validity. 
So he wrote to Poe and asked him to submit some prose for the anthology, including in his letter, quote, although I have some cause of personal quarrel with you, which you will easily enough remember, I do not under any circumstances permit, as you have repeatedly charged, my private griefs to influence my judgment as a critic or its expressions. I retain, therefore, the early formed and well-founded favorable opinions of your works. Uh, this publication ended up earning Poe a great deal of praise. Poe, we should point out, was not the only rival in Griswold's career. In 1847, he published a book titled Washington and the Generals of the Revolution. And at around the same time, the Reverend Joel T. Headley also published a book about George Washington titled Washington and His Generals. The parallel publications led to tension between the two men, with Headley casting a shadow over Griswold's work by insinuating that even his closest friends called Rufus a liar. Later that same year, Griswold also got into a rivalry with Elizabeth Ellett, who wrote a book on women of the American Revolution using materials from Griswold's personal library. When she neglected to thank him in the book, he was offended. He later wrote a note about her in an anthology of women poets that basically stated that she made, quote, valuable and interesting work, but that she used men to do so. Yeah, again, that that uh, 19th century literary circle drama is unsurpassed. Uh, when Edgar Allan Poe died on October 7th, 1849, Griswold became his literary executor. He claimed that Poe had requested this and that Poe's relatives had supported the decision, but uh, it seems that he may have forged some of the documentation that backed up this claim. On October 9th, a lengthy obituary titled simply Death of Edgar A. Poe ran in the New York Daily Tribune. It began, Edgar Allan Poe is dead. He died in Baltimore the day before yesterday. This announcement will startle many, but few will be grieved by it. The poet was well-known personally or by reputation in all this country. He had readers in England and in several of the states of continental Europe, but he had few or no friends, and the regrets for his death will be suggested principally by the consideration that in him, literary art has lost one of its most brilliant but erratic stars. That is just unnecessary. <laughs> And that's only the beginning. The rest of this very long obituary, it's not like an obit that we would see today where it's a few paragraphs. It's really quite lengthy. Uh, it walks through Poe's life. It outlines and details his many faults as a man and his gifts as a writer. Uh, it talks about, you know, some problems with drink and potential other substances. And near the end, it reads, quote, we must omit any particular criticism of Mr. Poe's works. As a writer of tales, it will be admitted generally that he was scarcely surpassed in ingenuity of construction or effective painting. As a critic, he was more remarkable as a dissector of sentences than as a commentator upon ideas. He was little better than a carping grammarian. As a poet, he will retain a most honorable rank. In this obituary, which praises Poe's writing, but pretty much uh, takes him down in every other way, was signed Ludwig, but it was eventually revealed that it was, in fact, Griswold that wrote it. In 1850, Griswold's dearest friend, poet Francis Sargent Osgood, died. She had been a piece of this whole feud between Griswold and Poe. It seems like for a time, even though he was married, Poe had entertained the notion of having a relationship with Fanny Osgood in a romantic way. 
but he felt that Griswold's interest in her got in the way of that. In any case, Griswold once again grieved deeply, but he seemed to deal with his feelings of loss around Fanny Osgood by working through them. He worked on Fanny's memorial with writer Mary Hewitt, he worked on several books, and he started working at International Magazine. Two years into his time there, that publication actually merged with Harper's Magazine. That same year, he edited a compiled works of Edgar Allan Poe, which he worked on with James R. Lowell and M.P. Willis. The book included a biography of Poe, titled Memoir of the Author, which has been a source of a lot of fallacies about Poe that have persisted for decades. Uh, Griswold took the opportunity to basically write a fictitious account of his rival's life, painting him as an utter mess and even substantiating his claims with falsified documents. Unfortunately, because Griswold's version of Poe's biography was sourced by other writers over the time, a lot of these falsehoods that he published have persisted. By 1852, Griswold had a new dilemma. As part of his settlement with Charlotte Myers, he was sworn to never marry again. And in fact, they were not legally divorced. But he was contemplating a third marriage, this time to the poet Alice Carey. And their romance, which had been conducted via letters, had been intense, but it, in fact, did not stand the test of time. Griswold actually found another woman that he felt he'd rather marry, Harriet McCrillis, who was wealthy in addition to being a woman of good social standing. Charlotte had no interest in legally divorcing Rufus, although she eventually acquiesced on the condition that Caroline would become solely her child. And a move that may be difficult for listeners who are parents to really comprehend Griswold agree with this. And he never saw Caroline again. He was granted his divorce and he married Harriet McCrillis on, in December of 1852. The two of them had a son named William the following year. But uh, even though it seemed like despite your feelings about his decisions regarding his daughters, uh, he had gotten his life kind of settled, he really did not achieve a level of happiness or bliss. His marriage was soured before long, when Elizabeth Ellett, who you remember he had that uh, bit of a, a tangle with, convinced Charlotte Meyer that she should contest the divorce she had agreed to and have it vacated. And the scandal of all of this led Harriet to leave, taking Griswold's daughter Emily with her. Uh, their train was in an accident, and Emily was briefly pronounced dead, but was revived. Soon after, in fall of 1853, Griswold was badly burned when his home caught fire. In 1855, Griswold wrote The Republican Court, or American Society, in the Days of Washington. This is generally considered to be his best work. It's a portrait of high society in the early days of the United States, and it draws parallels between the royal courts of Europe and the social structure that formed around George Washington as the first president of the United States. The Republican Court is available to read on archive.org. Yeah, we'll link to that in the show notes. Uh, and after his third marriage ended, Griswold moved into a rented room in New York City. His health declined due to tuberculosis, and in 1857, he really became very ill. Alice Carey, the poet woman that he had pushed aside in favor of Harriet McCrillis, actually took care of him in his final days. But when he sent word to Harriet asking to see her and their son William one last time, she traveled immediately to his bedside, and she remained there until he died. Griswold died just short of eight years after Edgar Allan Poe on August 27, 1857. 
A death announcement for Griswold was included in Emerson's magazine and Putnam's Monthly, Volume 5, published in 1857. Here is what it said. Quote, the earthly career of this man has terminated. And as public journalists, it is needful that we should have something to say of one who has been more widely associated with the literature of the country and with literary persons than any one left to us. We shall say little of the experience of Mr. Griswold, painful as it is, and as full of sorrow to himself as to others. No one is evil without knowing pain. No one is weak without the pangs of weakness. That Rufus W. Griswold was a weak and ill-judging man, no one will deny. As a man, there was much in him to regret. But those who knew something of his last lonely years, his bed of solitary and uncheered suffering, will feel for him only pity as one who was made to atone deeply for all the mistakes of his life. Yeah, after his uh, obituary of Poe, <laughs> yeah. it, it seems fitting that someone thought that that's maybe how they should write about him at the end. Yeah. But it is quite sad, and it is generally accepted that, like, once Caroline died, he became very conflicted about a great many things and really couldn't quite ever get away from the path of growing kind of more bitter as he went. Right. Uh, which is terribly sad. But yeah, he's an interesting figure and and we don't hear much about him outside of just being the guy that hated Poe when really he had this, you know, a rich life all his own as pretty much anyone we would ever talk about does. Uh, so that is Rufus Griswold. Do you have some listener mail for us as well? I do and it's peppy. Yay! Uh, it is another wonderful holiday card that we received. Uh, we've gotten so many beautiful ones. This one is from our listener, Chip, and he writes, Dear Holly and Tracy, I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed stuff you missed in history class, in the car, at home, while cooking, you name it. Your your work is always something I look forward to hearing. I know you hear this all the time, but truly you do excellent work as conveyors of information, and you're very entertaining as well. The podcast of the Devil's Footprints of Devonshire and its fabled kangaroo was so funny, I dropped a bowl of cheesecake batter, and I didn't even stop laughing to clean it up for a good five minutes. I'm still imagining a band of villagers trekking across the countryside following the prince in the snow. Also, the podcast concerning the green children of Woolpit and the Count of Saint-Germain were very amusing. Thank you so much for what you do. <laughs> Thank you, Chip. I mostly wanted to read it because uh, I want to have a moment of silence for his cheesecake batter. <laughs> That's very sad. Uh, but also, uh, it's just a lovely card. And Chip did a thing that I wanted to mention because I keep seeing people do it lately, and I love it because it's a nice hearkening back to... um kind of an old-fashioned form of correspondence, which is that he used a wax seal that's oh, quite yeah. lovely with his monogram. And those are, like, becoming Vogue again, and I love it. I'm glad they're becoming Vogue again, because I've had one for, like, 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I in this year in particular, we've gotten, you know, a, a lovely raft of holiday cards every year that we've been on the show. And this year in particular, I noticed a massive uptick in the use of those. So nice. I'm glad that those are are back in the, the public consciousness. Uh, if you would like to write to us, you can do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us at mistinhistory.com, where every episode of the show that has ever been done is still there, archived. Uh, and every episode that Tracy and I have worked on includes show notes. So come and visit us at Mist in History. You can also visit us on social media. We are Mist in History pretty much anywhere that you would encounter social media. And uh, we hope you come and visit us at mistinhistory.com. Come. 
For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. <laughs>